Chapter 6 of Essays Irish and American. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. Essays Irish and American by John Butler Yeats. The Modern Woman. Reflections on a New and Interesting Type Queen Elizabeth, we know, had many lovers, but was herself never in love, and so she was able to get the better of her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, who, poor soul, allowed herself to be ensnared by the tender passion. Queen Elizabeth, on the historic page, is a monster, yet what was singular in her is now quite general. It has been America which has given the world this strange type. Like everything else that happens in this country, she has sprung suddenly upon us as if she had neither father nor mother, nor any visible ancestry. She may be in a minority, yet she is not difficult to discover, for she is most active, showing herself everywhere. Nor is it difficult to describe her, since she spends much of her time in describing herself. In the first place, like the orator, she is made rather than born. Indeed, she is herself a good deal of an orator, always being ready to harangue her friends, explaining and enforcing her ideas. Self-improvement is her passion. Improvement in what direction, you will ask? She herself does not know. Meantime, she insists on absolute personal liberty, moral, physical, mental, and also political. That she may be free, she places a ban on the senses and upon sex. Either of these would put her back under subjugation. She announces herself to be eager for affection, but its object must be some person who is supernaturally perfect and complete. Anything else would be illogical and unworthy and enslaving. And while her mother dreamed of a life of love and duty in a world where both are necessary because of its sorrowful imperfections, she will be satisfied with nothing less than a perfect love and a perfect affection. At the same time, while resolved on liberty, she does not forget that she is born into a business community. Therefore, she has adopted the businessman's creed, efficiency. Whatsoever thou doest, do it with all thy might. The young men know liberty to be a chimera. That vision has never flattered their eyes. Life to them means hard work and obedience, and a constant struggle in circumstances where everything is compromised, and where even honesty is not always the best policy. And as to success and the making of money, even the greatest energy will not suffice if there be not good luck and the opportunity. Unlike the women, these young men have their dreams, for dreams are the solace of labor and abstinence. Dreams, first of all, of success and fortune of which they constantly speak. And then another dream not so easy to talk about, that each may marry some day the girl of his choice. Here you have American life as it is among the young, the man under discipline and a dreamer, the woman a triumphant egotist and without any dreams at all. And as to this liberty which she haughtily demands, what is it among the girls except the right to choose and dismiss her teachers abandoning everything and everybody as soon as she ceases to feel interested. Never having been curbed, she has not learned to prefer another to herself. 
In vain, nature cries out within her for the sweet burden of service and sacrifice. She is much too busy listening to her own voice, repeating its new catchwords. I will be myself. I belong to myself. I must lead my own life. Once she enters society and becomes a woman and meets men, she acquires a very definite purpose and goes straight for it. Since she will not serve the men, let the men serve her. The American women, said a languidly insolent Englishman to me, are interesting. The men are non-entities. In this Englishman's conception, the man who does not take the upper hand with his women is a poor creature. The ladies in England do not like the modern American woman. Her success with their own mankind is bitter to bear, yet they envy her. For these men are serving women as they never served before, and it is precisely because, like the Englishman, the modern woman is herself an egotist. Egoism, the Englishman understands. It has always been his honored creed and his practice. And here at last is a woman who, because of her frank selfishness, is perfectly intelligible. No longer the mystery she used to be, but simple like a child's puzzle. Her frantic brand new egoism is not quite the sober article he patronizes for himself, but it delights him nevertheless, because it is so like his own daily contest with antagonists whom he must overcome in business. And here is a beautiful enemy, whom he must both overcome and capture and carry away with him as a prize of war, to be the ornament of his house and a delight to the eyes, to be his courtier, his worshipper, his wife. And as to the extravagance of her egoism, he feels that as a man he can soon teach her a different lesson, so that she will settle back into tameness and play her woman's part and be his English wife. And even if she does not, consider what an advantage it is to have within doors a wife who is perfectly intelligible and with whom he knows what to do. Why, he can be as logical in his own home as in his place of business. The woman used to be the greatest mystery in the world. You might defy her, or be kind and yield to her, or crush her with your iron will, but you couldn't understand her. No man could read that riddle. The writers of comedy, the writers of tragedy, all tried their hands at it. Satirists and wits were never tired of the fascinating theme. Yet it was all guesswork. No one pretended to know, and the husbands least of all. Henry VIII, who cut off the heads of his wives, knew no more than last year's lover. Such used to be woman. Now she is as easy to read as an old almanac. Watch her as she paces Fifth Avenue with her business-like air. How bright her eyes, and yet hard as jewels. Her smile how thin-lipped, and her figure that of a young athlete. Her mode of dress and of personal array how smart and efficient and almost military. She is the very embodiment of briskness and of commanding decision. But all lines of allurement are vanished, and she no longer undulates with slow grace. She is not feline, neither is she deer-like, and she no longer caresses, for her voice is as uncompromising as her style of dress. The ordinary man, unless he was a gentleman of the old school, or a high-placed nobleman, or an Irish peasant, has always despised the arts of pleasing, until some charming woman has taken him in hand. But the modern woman has ceased to instruct him, and has become his imitator, 
so that her manners are almost as intimidating as those of the successful businessmen. Where is that threefold charm of mystery, subtlety, and concealment under which womanhood was wont to veil its powers? And while so many bow down before the conquering woman, where are the poets? The astronomers, the mathematicians, the scientists, the men of business, the lawyers, especially the lawyers, are at her feet. But no music comes from the poet. And she, is she so happy? Egoism is unhappiness for man and woman. Talleyrand called Napoleon the unamusable. It used to be the man who was egotist and the woman who served, for she said, our mission is to please, hence her all-prevailing charm, and hence also her invincible happiness, for happiness is the denial of egoism. However it be at other times, the happy woman and the happy man are righteous, in man's sight and in God's. Happiness is the secret known only to poets and to women, and it was the woman who taught it to the poets. Mere man knows little about it, least of all the successful man, for risking everything he has mostly lost everything. Under his prosperity there is generally distaste. And how sorrow and disaster can at times degrade a man we all know. He becomes gloomy, bitter, or drearily self-contained, or he drops into dissipation and becomes vulgar. The woman, on the other hand, finds in disaster her opportunity. And sorrow, which the woman's life seldom escapes, however it be with the men, only intensifies her womanhood, so that she anticipates a later wisdom and luminously refuses to recognize any distinction except that between the happy and the unhappy. There are only two people who are perfectly content, a woman busy in her home and a poet among his rhymes. They have the secret. They share it between them. They break bread together. They are of the company, even though the poet knows nothing of domestic life, nor the other of rhymes. The true, the natural woman is like a bird. She has wings. When she is a young girl, she is like a bird just spreading her wings for flight. When she is a matured woman, she is like a bird in full flight. Desire gives her wings and stirs within her the creative impulse. And nothing can stop her strong flight towards happiness. She has the creative gift. Wherever her eye lights, there is happiness. She gilds with heavenly alchemy whatever she touches. The resolute, practical man puts away the thought of happiness, and for it substitutes pleasures, which are the gratification of the senses and his unquenchable thirst for variety and movement. These gratifications he can resign with little effort. Mere pleasure is ashes in the mouth, while the other, he thinks, would unnerve him. That is for poets, he will tell you. The woman does not believe in pleasures. She believes in happiness. A supreme belief in happiness is the woman's soul. It awakens in her the moment she is in love or has a child and accompanies her everywhere. It explains, I think, the curious self-centeredness of her mind and that strange aloofness which seems to envelop her who has husband and children. In her presence, we talk of this and that, and do this and that, and she watches us with eyes in which is the light of knowledge and foreknowledge. The man is a worker and a fighter. With strenuous effort, he pushes along the car of progress and dies under its wheels, and we make lamentations. 
But these women should be carried to their graves with song of hope and wistful triumph. Any other kind of music would be wounding to our recollections. A man talks mysticism and he argues, and I am bored. A woman looks and perhaps smiles, and almost as by the touching of hands communicates her own unfading hopes. She does not use words, and we do not oppose her with words. Long ago, people talked much of ladies' eyes, and ancient Homer, as we know, sang of the exide Juno and the azure-eyed Minerva. Now ladies' eyes are too bright and too exacting to be so eloquent, so persuading. And for all her dominating ways, she is not the queen she was, nor for all her witch-like effectiveness is she so calmly beautiful. By turning egotist, she has dropped down to our level. She is one of us. And yet the modern woman is right and has arrived in the nick of time. She is needed because the modern man is not always a gentleman. Some 15 years ago, I was witness to a strange scene on Kew Bridge outside London one Sunday morning. A line of five young ladies came riding by on cycles, wearing bloomers. This excited the loud derision of some loafers, some half-breeds, standing together on the side path, and one of them said something. I did not know what, but the last of the girls heard it and understood. She stopped, and carefully adjusting her machine so that it stood up against the curb of the side path, walked back to the young man and asked him if he had used the offensive words. She then knocked him down, and he fell, probably not so much because of her strength as because of his own surprise. Sheepishly, he got up, brushing his clothes, and his companions laughed as sheepishly, while she remounted and rode after her friends. Here was the modern woman, but immature, effective on this occasion, yet much too crude for anything except a guerrilla war. In Belfast, famous for its bad manners, everyone tries to be boss over someone else. Yet, if everyone can't be boss in Belfast, there is no man even now who cannot find, both in Belfast and New York and everywhere else, a woman whom he may boss. This is one of the solid comforts of the masculine existence. But young ladies teaching in the public schools are watching sympathetically the career of the modern woman. It insults a woman nowadays to say that the woman's destiny is to be always dependent on some man. But we who say this know perfectly well that it is equally true to say of the man that it is his destiny to be dependent on some woman. These two must patch up their differences. Man must yield to woman equality and dignity, and she must take him back into favor. There is no such companionship as that between a man and a woman. She brings her wisdom traditional with her sex, and derived from a long study of the question how to live, and he brings his energy, derived from his long study of how to make a living. When energy makes him say, let us forget the present and think about the future, she will reply, let us enjoy the present. Am I not young? Is not the childhood of these children exquisite? People forget, or do not know, that man's desire for liberty is not greater than his desire for restraint. By practicing the art of happiness, he gets both. The gratification of all the desires, tempered by each, is happiness. Hope restrained by memory and the lust of the flesh by affection and sympathy. Herein is richest harmony and a servitude which is perfect freedom. Pleasure 
is the gratification of some one desire pushed to excess and followed by weariness and satiety. And while pleasure overwhelms intellect and silences it, happiness makes intellect supreme. Happiness enforces discipline spontaneously. Pleasure relaxes it and brings on license, which is the shadow of liberty and its final destruction. It is character, they say, that saves the world. Does this mean the will that is strong to grasp and hold? If so, then I know of something infinitely greater, the full and varied knowledge that comes from the whole complex human personality, every instrument in the orchestra, being developed in our consciousness, so that no single desire is refused a hearing, as in a good democracy where every citizen has his rights secured. Here we have the benign wisdom of Shakespeare and of good women, and its motive is the deliberate search for happiness. It kindles the heart and shines in the eyes of a beautiful woman when she goes about in her home and among her friends and neighbors. Beautiful and a scepter-bearing queen. Because in a world where everyone runs mad after this and that falsehood, she stands for the simple truth of human happiness and all its possibilities. Wisdom is better than force and supersedes it. End of chapter 6